Let's open to Daniel chapter 6 this morning. We continue. We're moving right along. Daniel chapter 6. You know, as you're making your way there, I wonder how many of you guys remember Rosie Ruiz from 1980? Anybody remember that name? Yeah, a couple of hands. Rosie was infamous in the sense that she ran the Boston Marathon. And, uh, and in 1980, not only did she run it, but she finished in two hours uh, in just under 32 minutes. Uh, and um, she, in the process, she set a new woman's world record and she won the women's division. Um, but right away there was controversy about her race because she was a relative unknown. In fact, nobody knew her. And, and here she came and she ran and she beat all the women and she set a woman's world record. And people are like, how did this unknown person, you know, come about and do all this? And then um, over and above that, she didn't have the typical marathoner's body. You know, the marathoner's body. They don't have an ounce of body fat. They look like, you know, they've just spent, you know, the last six years on a hunger strike. I mean, that, you know, just completely thin rail look. She didn't look like that. I mean, she was, she was athletic. She was, in, she was in decent shape, but she was no marathoner to look at her. And so everybody was, you know, they're just kind of skeptical. You know, they're, they're just sort of, yeah, I don't know, man. There's just something about you kind of thing. And so over the next week, you know, they're scrutinizing her like crazy. And sure enough, cracks in her story begin to emerge. Um, she couldn't remember key segments of the race, key sections of the course. Uh, she couldn't remember her split times, which I guess for marathoners, that's a big deal. And they keep track of these things. And she, she not only couldn't remember them, she was, seemed to be unfamiliar with this concept of split times. Um, none of the spotters in the race could recall seeing her at, at key stations and so on. And, um, and sure enough, on the, on the eighth day, under intense scrutiny, the, the truth came to light that uh, Rosie had taken the subway for about 25 miles of the race. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And Rosie was able to fool some people for a little while, but she couldn't fool everybody. And um, ultimately the truth came out. And I wonder today, as we're, as we're embarking here in, a, in the next chapter in Daniel, I wonder if, if your life, was subjected to the, the same intense kind of scrutiny as uh, Rosie Ruiz endured. I wonder if your life was subjected to the amount of intense scrutiny that we will see Daniel's life subjected to here in chapter 6. Uh, I wonder what would come to light in your life. I wonder what people might discover about you. Again, here in Daniel 6, that's what's going on. Daniel is about to face the most intense scrutiny that he's ever faced uh, in his life. The big idea of Daniel chapter 6 is this. It's the implications of living a faithful life. What are the implications of living a life faithful to God? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Daniel uh, chapter 6. And actually, for context, I'm going to pick it up in verse 31 of chapter 5, uh, where we concluded last week. And Darius, it says, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, this guy, Darius, the name Darius, it, it literally means holder of the scepter. And, and it's more a title than it is a name. Uh, and uh, in fact, it's, it's uh, open to, you know, question who exactly was this guy, Darius. Um, it's most likely that he was a guy by the name of uh, Gubaru, uh, potentially a good fighter with a name like that as well. Um, but a uh, guy by the name of Gubaru, who was the man that, that King Cyrus uh, put in charge of Babylon when, when they conquered it. Not unlike when, you know, the, the allies defeated Japan, uh, General Douglas MacArthur was the guy that was put in power over Japan. Now, he was not the, the, the president. He was not the ruler. He was the man appointed uh, to, to govern uh, uh, Japan. 
upon their being conquered. And, and so it, that's, that's the, the best idea, I think. Darius was, was this guy, uh, holder of the scepter. He was the guy in charge. He was the guy that King Cyrus put uh, in charge of and probably the guy that, that led uh, the, the battle and the brilliant takeover of Babylon when, when uh, uh, Belshazzar was, uh, was, was defeated. And so verse 6, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. Really, you know, remember there's, there's about 120 provinces uh, in all of Babylon, and so he's putting a guy in charge of, of each province. Uh, verse 2, and over these, over these 120 satraps, uh, three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. See, because the satrap's job, the overseer of this province job, is to tax the people, among other things. He's governing an entire province, and he wants to make sure everyone's paying their taxes. And, uh, and being the person that's overseeing that, well, accountability is always a good thing. Uh, and so what you have is a guy who's put in charge to make sure that all the tax dollars come in. And then you've got a guy that's put in charge to oversee him uh, to make sure that, you know, he ain't pocketing any of that money, you know. He, he, the king doesn't want to suffer any loss. And so these three uh, guys have been put in charge, um, three governors, and Daniel becomes one of them. Hey, oversee uh, all of these uh, 120 uh, provinces. Um, Verse 3, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. And so verse 4, the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel, probably because they're in cahoots together, probably because, you know, the king is rightly suspecting, you know, I've got this system in place so that I'm not ripped off, but I'm not entirely sure that that I'm not being ripped off. And who's going to oversee these governors? And so who's my most faithful guy? Well, here, I've got this guy who's who's distinguished himself, who has an excellent spirit. I'm maybe going to put him him in charge, and these guys, it would seem, uh, were rightly needing to be governed uh, and looked at a little closer, because now they're in cahoots together. Uh, They sought to find some sort of charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Now, My first point, I'd have you write it down, faithfulness will be rewarded. Faithfulness will be rewarded. If you are going to be somebody who is going to follow and to serve God, you need to know that ultimately your faithfulness will be rewarded. I want you to notice in verse 3 that Daniel distinguished himself. And this is what Daniel did. Daniel made a habit of distinguishing himself. He's been in Babylonian captivity his entire life taken from as a young man, and in every time and in every rule, whether it was the rule of Nebuchadnezzar or whether it was the rule of Belshazzar or now it's the the rule of Darius, uh, the Mede, in every single one, they recognize the skills, they recognize the gifting, they recognize the talent, and and they say, hey, listen, I'm going to make you to be this man who holds this prominent uh, position. Proverbs 18.6, and maybe a good verse just to kind of write in the margin next to this verse, says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, leave that up just for a second. When, it, when it, that phrase makes room, uh, that's very telling uh, in the original language. It literally means to be widened or enlarged. And, and here's the idea. The implication of this verse is that it's not just your gift that makes room. It's the faithful execution of that gift. It's your due diligence to be a good steward of that gift and to exercise that gift. That is what makes room for you. That's what widens the possibilities uh, in your life. Merely possessing the gift doesn't make room for you. You have to use it. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, you know, by now, you should know that a steward, that is somebody who manages something that doesn't belong to them. 
That is someone who manages something that has been entrusted to them by God. Just like these parents coming before us today, dedicating their children to the Lord. They're exercising a stewardship. They're recognizing and acknowledging, Lord, this is an incredible gift. One of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. I would walk through fire for my children. And I recognize they belong to you. I have an incredible stewardship. I have a responsibility to exercise my, my duty over them. And, and so, you know, again, Paul says, look, it's required in a steward that he be found faithful. Jesus talking about stewardship in a parable that he told in Luke chapter 16, uh, he said this, he said, he who is faithful in what is least is, is faithful also in much. And, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And you see, the point is, it's to the degree that we are responsible with small things that God has entrusted to us that he will entrust even greater things to us. And at this, just the perfect opportunity for you to ask yourself, and one of those questions I would have you really take a walk with this week, just that prayerful walk of meditating, meditating before the Lord and, and a meditation on how the Lord would speak to you. And that is this, Lord, how faithful am I? Am I a faithful person? See, it, 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 again, it's to the degree that we are responsible with the small things in our life that, that God will make us faithful in much. When uh, my wife and I planted our first church, we had the great honor to see God bless and grow and, and, and minister in that church in such a way that just blew our minds. And, um, and the church ultimately would grow to over 6,000 people. And, and it, <laughs> despite us probably, but... but you know, when a church grows, and we've seen that here, I mean, God is blessed and, and we've grown from, you know, humble beginnings now, you know, almost a thousand people in, in our church. And, and, and it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's just, you know, one benchmark indicator of, you know, that God's doing a work, but it's, it's all that comes with that. And you start to see the ministry expand and you begin to see, you know, you've got an Awana ministry and you've got a VBS ministry and, and you've got, you know, an, a ministry to, to mothers of preschoolers. And, and you have, you know, outreaches where, where people are, are coming to the Lord and, and you see every single Sunday people making professions of faith and you see people's marriages being changed and you see, you begin to see just this exponential work as God begins to just pour out his spirit. And, and what, what, I, what I noticed in that first church was that, and I saw it again here, but I wasn't as surprised by it here, but it really surprised me in the first church that we planted that when we first started it was humble pie, man. It was, it was the days of small things. And nobody really wanted to give us the time of day. It, it was almost a despised kind of, you know, work. It was sort of one of two reactions. Oh, isn't that cute kind of thing? Uh, or it was a, you know, you guys aren't legitimate kind of thing. And, and so people who wouldn't give us the time of day, now all of a sudden God starts pulling out his Holy Spirit and, and a work starts to go and it starts to get some incredible traction. And, it, and now it's, you know, it grows into a church of 6,000 people and over 100 people on staff and you've got a 10-acre facility and you've got all these ministries. Now those same people, they want to get on board. Now they want part of, you know, the action that's going on. But, but again, so many people didn't want to do what was required. They just wanted to reap the benefits of what somebody else had been a part of. And here's what it's all about. This is the get I want you to hear. It's about humble obedience. It's about, listen, the word is faithful. Being faithful. And, and, and so this, this lesson of, man, those people that were faithful in the days of small things, their faithfulness and God working and meeting them in that place, that's what's, that's what's required. God is looking, he's searching the entire earth for those that are going to be faithful to him, for those whose hearts are going to be loyally committed to him. And again, I ask you the question, what kind of a person are you? Are you the person that has the attitude that says, I will be faithful, I will serve. 
I will commit, Lord, even here in this humble, in the days of small things, it's not about all the trappings of quote-unquote success. Lord, it's just about serving you and being faithful. Jesus also, when he told this parable of the talents, not only uh, did he say that uh, he was faithful in, in the little will be faithful in much, if I can paraphrase, he, he also said that those who mismanage that little that's been entrusted to them, he, he said even what they have will be taken away from them. Think about it. Suppose you're the boss and your employee comes to you and he says, look, I know I'm a pretty lousy employee. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sloppy and I'm, and I'm lazy. But you know what? If you gave me a raise, I'd work harder. You know, if you gave me a promotion, I, I'd stop waking up at the crack of noon and making excuses for not being here on time. And, and I'd start working a little harder. Now you're the boss. What would you do in that situation? Is that guy getting a raise? No, does that guy have a job anymore? Probably not. You'd probably fire him, right? And, and with that thought, I wonder why it is so often that we can be, as Christians, listen, this is important, we can be unfaithful stewards, we can be unfaithful servants of God, and yet we will ask repeatedly, we will expect, hey, God, give me, give me, give me, give me. My name is Jimmy, give me all you give me, you know? The book of James, chapter 4. James has a way of just shooting you between the eyes, and when you're just reeling from it, then he kicks you in the butt as well. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. That stings a little bit. See, Daniel was faithful to the work that God had called him to. And God distinguished him because his faithful attitude to say, I'm going to serve God. And it's not about being the number three ruler. It's not about being the number two guy. It's not about all the trappings of success. It's not about, you know, anything else. It's not about, hey, give me a pay raise, give me a promotion, and then maybe I'll stop phoning it in. No, he was faithful in whatever God had called him to. My exhortation for you in this point, and, and, and again, the idea is your faithfulness will be rewarded. Listen, you need to be the person that, that has the attitude to say, Lord, what does faithfulness mean in my life? What does it mean in my life? And God, by his Holy Spirit, when you, when you honestly ask that question, you will get a legitimate, honest answer back from God. He will be faithful to put his finger on the things in your life. And as a matter of fact, I'm so confident of that. I know that right this moment, the Holy Spirit is working a work in some of your hearts of conviction. Where you recognize when, when we talk about this issue of being faithful, you think, well, I'm not. And you, that thing is right in your heart. It's in your head. It's, in, it's right at the front of your, of your thoughts. You know, I've not been faithful to that. See, your faithfulness will be rewarded, but you have to be faithful. And will you notice again, I want you to, to, to notice that Daniel had a solid character. If you notice again in verse 4, the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel according to the kingdom, uh, or concerning the kingdom, but they could not find any charge or fault because he was, and what's the word? Faithful. Might want to circle that word because he was faithful. See, here's the thing faithfulness repels slander. This is the second point. Not only, number one, will it be rewarded, but it also repels slander in your life. Maybe you recall in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and God sent the prophet Samuel to call him on it. He thought he got away with it. He thought he'd swept it all under the rug, thought he'd gotten, everything, you know, gotten a buy on everyone. And Samuel comes to him and, and calls him on the carpet. And, and in the process of giving him this dressing down from God, Samuel says this to him. He says, by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In other words, look, you have just given your enemies ammunition to, to blaspheme God. 
because, because you were not faithful. There's nothing worse than giving your enemy ammunition, is there? No, don't you hate that? If you guys remember the, the presidential election, 1988, George Bush the first was, was in the presidential race, and, and there, were, there was a, a scramble among the Democrats. Who was it going to be that was going to be on the Democratic ticket? And Gary Hart was the forerunner, um, but, but he had these, these issues of character that were kind of dogging him. And, and so the, the accusation was, and the rumor mill was, that this guy um, was being unfaithful to his wife, that he was carrying on a, an affair. And so Gary Hart went on uh, television and very publicly he said, listen, I dare you. He's talking to the press corps. He says, I dare you to, to search my life. You can follow me around, do whatever you want. I dare you to find if there's, if there's any shenanigans going on. Well, one of the newspapers that very day took him up on his dare and published photos of him with Donna Rice uh, on a boat called, interestingly enough, The Monkey Business. Um, and these pictures were, were quite compromising and the nail in his campaign's coffin, and he, he fell out of the race. And the sad fact is, is that a lot of times, we as Christians, we can well, we give enemies of God ammunition so often, don't we? Because, you know, we're not faithful in our witness. Again, I, I think I've told you the story. I was driving down the freeway uh, not too long ago, and I had this guy cut me off, and then he flips me off, and in the back of his window, it's a Christian sticker. I'm thinking, come on, man, really? I mean, this is, this is what you're going to, this is, this is the, the witness that you're going to portray to the world. See, but the lesson of Daniel chapter 6 is that it doesn't have to be that way. It, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and you guys know, that's my pet peeve. I hate that Christians give non-Christians so much ammunition to, to blaspheme our Lord. And the reason why so many non-Christians have completely turned their back on the church is because they've seen enough hypocrisy in the life of Christians. And it, and it, and it shouldn't be that way. We need to understand that we have a responsibility, we have a duty to show ourselves faithful to God. And that when we don't, we bring reproach upon his name. And our faithfulness, again, reiterated in second point, it repels the slander that's going to come. Several years ago, Dr. Laura Schlesinger was telling a story. She actually read a, a, a letter that she got on a radio program. And it was from a guy who uh, his kid was going to this particular school. They were having sex education. And she was, um, or he, the father was worried um, about this sex education because of the material that they'd sent home. There, there wasn't any mention of abstinence in it. He was, he was quite concerned. So he decided to go down and, and he was disconcerted that not many parents did. There was only a few, you know, a small sampling of the parents in the whole class that even bothered to show up. And so he's there, and, and they're in the, in the opening part, and he, just, he, he had a question for the, for the school teacher, and, and he asked her, he said, look, I, I really don't see a lot of material here on, on abstinence. Snickers, jeers, outright hostility from, from everybody in the group, really. And he's just feeling like an, like an idiot for even saying anything and, and completely on the outs. And so then as a strategic part of this, this class that or this orientation that the teacher was having, she said to, to all of the, the parents that were assembled, she said, now um, we're going to take, at this point, we're going to take a 10-minute break and uh, we have donuts in the back and uh, go, uh, everybody, please help yourself to your donuts and go, you'll find your name tag, go make sure you put on your name tag and make a point of getting to know one another. And so um, this this father who's there, he's, he's praying, he's asking the Lord for wisdom because he, he feels a burden to, to be salt and light and to be faithful to what God had led him to do. So, so he's praying at this point and, and he hears loud and clear, he hears the Lord tell him, don't go. And so he stays in his chair and the teacher comes up to him and she's all, you know, pouring just syrup and sweet of, oh, you know, the donuts are really good and go and the talk to the people would be really good. And, and uh, he said, no, thank you. And, uh, and so then she called the class back together. Now she begins her presentation. Now she's, she's, you know, glaring at the guy, completely ignoring him. But she goes on to talk to the rest of the people. And basically what she says is, um, uh, did all of you enjoy your conversation and your donuts? You know, yes, yes, yes. And she says, 
Okay, now you all got your name tag. Yeah, all right. Now, can, can, can all of you can, you, can you all look at the name tag? Can, does anybody have a small flower on their name tag? And one guy looks down and he says, oh yeah, I've got the small flower here. And she said, okay, well, you know what? That small flower represents a sexually transmitted disease. Now, can I ask you, who did you interact with? Who did you say hello to? And he, he points out the few people that he, you know, he got to meet. And she says, now, you, you know, he just passed on that sexually transmitted disease to you. And then she says to the others the, the, that they, now, who did you say hello to? And they go on. And then, you know, she goes on to tell the people. Now, she says, well, let me just tell you, this is a little interaction that we do, and we do this with our students to talk to them uh, about how they can practice safe sex. And, and the donuts represent, you know, the donuts in the conversation and all, that represents the, the temptations of, and the allure of, of sex and how you, you know, are just, you, you, you're going to go and you're going to be interactive like this. And so you have to be very careful to practice safe sex. And the father at this point heard the Lord speak to him very clearly, said, now it's time to speak up, but be humble. And so the father raised his hand and he said, excuse me, not everyone partook of the donuts. I abstained. And this gal just red-faced, you know, just completely upset. He's like, you know, making his point. And, and, and the issue in telling that story for us is this idea of, hey, faithfulness repels slander. Um, when, when you are a person that lives a life of integrity, doesn't matter what those do that are going to, uh, you know, come against you. When you take a stand for righteousness, when you live your life faithfully, well, the Bible says that you're going to be victorious against the attacks that you're going to face. Isaiah 54 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness, God says, is from me, says, <clears throat> excuse me, says the Lord. Now, nevertheless, they're still going to try. Look at verse 5. We continue. It says, Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever, all the governors of the kingdom. Now that's a lie because they leave Daniel out of this. So they're, they're you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. They're going to, the, to, to Darius and telling him something that ain't true. But they say, hey, all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any God or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, this isn't one of my points, but just an just a observation real quickly. They appeal to this man's pride, and that's what brings him low. And the Bible says just that, that pride brings a man low. And so we need to be very careful. But this is how they get through to Darius. They appeal to his pride. Hey, what, you know, we want everybody to worship you as God. And his pride says, yeah, that sounds, that sounds just about right. Let's do that. Uh, verse 8, now, O king, establish the, this decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, my third point, if you're taking notes, number one, faithfulness will be rewarded. Number two, faithfulness repels slander. Third point, faithfulness will be reviled. When you are faithful to God, your faithfulness will be reviled. Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my, for my namesake. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hates you. In, in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John said this. He says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now, did you catch that? The world hates God's people because... They're convicted by you. That's why so often we are reviled and we are persecuted because the person just in our presence and all that we stand for, they feel guilt and conviction. Turn to Romans chapter one real quick. 
We're going to verse 18. That's where we'll pick it up. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to jump right in. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, Romans chapter 1, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now skip down to verse uh, 27, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. Listen, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Now, I'll just stop right there and and highlight two of these attributes, two of these traits that he talks about. He says there at the end of verse 29, they are whisperers. And at the very beginning of verse 30, he says they are backbiters. Now, that, that, that name whisperer, uh, in, in the, the original language, it, it, it basically, it's the word detractor. It literally means this. It means it's one who draws a weight, draws one, another away, uh, who diverts, who distracts. And the idea is that the, the world wants to draw away, to divert, and to distract from, from you as a righteous follower of God, the world is going to revile what you do and everything you stand for, and this is their agenda. And again, you look at the word backbiter, that literally means to speak against. And so what they want to do is they want to divert, they want to distract, they want to speak against everything that it is that you stand for. And this is why Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we need to understand that this will be part of it, that our faithfulness is going to be reviled. And it's exactly what Daniel's going through back here in Daniel chapter six is, is that, is that he, he's been, not, he's, he's got the, the Darius's, you know, intention is, hey, here's a righteous guy. Here's a guy I can trust. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put him in charge. He's going to be the, the head governor over everybody else and everybody else. They, they don't want to have nothing to do with that. They're, 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 they're re- reviling that. Again, the point of application for us, and, and it's just so important to understand, that you, you need to, to know that, that your, your faithfulness is go- not going to be something that everybody's going to appreciate. You will be reviled. You will be persecuted. Which is why, going back to the second point, it is so critically important that we are those ones that are um, making sure that we're faithful to God because that's going to repel they're reviling. It's going to repel all of their attacks. It's going to, all of their accusations against you are, are, are going to fall flat if you will do that. Now, I want to real quickly move to make my fourth and final point, and this is where we're going to call it quits for today, um, but it, it's important. Uh, the fourth point, I'll give it to you now. It's faithfulness must be repeated. Your faithfulness must be repeated. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. In other words, the law was passed. The law is now in effect. When Daniel knew that, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, that's important, we'll come back to that, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, in accordance with scripture, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying. Now they knew he was going to be praying. 
They were waiting for this. That's what, they're like, all right, now it's time. We, we can set our watch by the fact that this guy's going to do this, which is a good thing. And so they assembled and, and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? They know exactly what they're doing. They set this whole thing up. And the king answered and he said, the thing is true. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. And, and this is the idea, the law of the Medes and the Persians. You remember, we talked about the vision that God gave Daniel, or gave rather to King Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted. And that vision was this image of gold. Uh, the head was, was of gold. And then the, the, the chest and arms were of silver and, and the, the descending order of, you know, uh, the, the different metals throughout the different parts of the body. And the whole idea was, look, you're going to have kingdoms that come after you and they're going to be inferior to yours. And in one of the ways that the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was inferior to the, the rule of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar was that Nebuchadnezzar had absolute authority. He had absolute control. And he could just say the word and whatever he dictated, that would be the thing. And if he changed his mind, he could rescind it because he had absolute power and authority. It wasn't the same way with the Medes and the Persians. Basically, in this kingdom, once the law was passed... The king couldn't change it. The, and and the, the idea had to do with infallibility. It, it was, you know, well, the, the, the kings are gods, and, and so if they make a decision, it, well, they can't possibly make a mistake. So if that's the decision, that's the, the decision that sticks. Nobody can, can rescind it. So in a way, this is inferior to the power that Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed. And so this is what these guys are saying. Look, you made the law, you know, Tap, tap, seat back kind of thing. You can't change it, you know? And, and so this is what they're pointing out to him. According to law, the Medes and the Persians, which the law doesn't alter. Verse 13, so they answered and they said before the king, that Daniel, whom, you, whom uh, excuse me, was one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard to you, O king, for the decree that you have signed, uh, uh, due regard for that decree you have signed, but he makes petition three times a day. And the king... Uh, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. He knew, man, I blew it. These guys played me like a fiddle. They completely set me up. He, he's, he's, he's no doubt furious with them, but he's most upset with himself. They, they suckered me right into this. And, you know, he liked Daniel. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. And then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Now, it's significant that it was at the going, he labored until the going down of the sun because the way the law worked was you had to execute the, the law before the end of the day. Once an infraction, was found, you could not let the day end without following through on the punishment. And that's why it says he labored until the sun went down because he's like, man, I'm up against the clock here. I have to execute judgment. Is there any possible way that I can get out of this and not throw Daniel into the lion's den? And so they come to him after sundown. They're like, dude, time's up. What, you know, you better not, you, you better not go against your word. And so verse 16, the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, significant, he calls him your God. He doesn't call him my God. And so there's no illusions here that, that Darius has surrendered his life to the Lord, that, that he is a child of God, but he has such incredible respect for Daniel's integrity, that by Daniel's life, he's, he says, I know that your God's going to deliver you. That is, that is one powerful witness. Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Verse 17, then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, which was his signal. It would have been wax that was put there, and he would have put the, his seal in it so that it you know, couldn't be tampered. Uh, and with the signets of his lords, and everybody else put theirs in it as well. Count, this is the cosign. This is the notary, you know. And... Um, 
the purpose of this was concerning Daniel might not be changed. In other words, somebody might not go and, and, and secret him out. By the way, there's, there's a great typology here, which we're not going to get into today, but there's a, a very significant typology of Jesus going into the tomb. Um, again, we're not going to get into that today. We may get into it next week. But moving on, the, the fourth and final point, again, is that faithfulness must be repeated. Here's the idea. Daniel knew that the law was in force. He knew it had been signed, but still he prayed. See, he, 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 was, he was still faithful to do what he had to do. See, here's, here's, here's the get, here's the idea. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's the thing. That's, that's the very definition of faithfulness, guys. The dictionary defines faithful this way. It says the loyal, consistent, the loyal, consistent performance of duty. It's loyal, it's consistent, and you're loyal and consistent to the performance of a duty. This last June, Brenda and I celebrated our, our 28th anniversary. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been amazing. It's awesome. And we, through, you know, 28 years of marriage, we have been faithful to one another. Now, what if I had the attitude where I said, you know what, 28 years, that's a long time of being faithful, man. I, you know what, I, I get that one. I get, you know, check, check the box. I, I've been faithful. And you know what, um, now I want a girlfriend, I mean, I've been faithful to her for 28 years. You know, get off my back. I want a girlfriend. And she's hot, man. And, and so you, you know, you see this and, and you call me on it, which, by the way, is biblical. It's the way it ought to work. That's the kind of church I want. Uh, and so you come to me and you say, you know, moron. You know, you've got, this, you've got this awesome wife who we love and we don't like you very much. We only tolerated you because of her. And, uh, and, and so what on earth, man, what are you thinking? And my attitude towards you was to get off me, man. I've been faithful for 28 years. And what would you rightly say at that point? What you would rightly say at that point is yes. And then you were unfaithful, which makes you a loser. <laughs> you're, you're, it makes you unfaithful. I don't, I don't care if you've been faithful for 28 years. I don't care if you've been faithful for 50 years. You chose at a certain point to be unfaithful. And guess what? That makes you faithful because you weren't loyally consistent in the performance of your duty. See, and, and, and this is the thing here is that we need to understand for, for Daniel, he's not done. He's not finished. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one, only one, receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Daniel, at this point, he's in his 90s. He's an old man, but he ain't done. And so he could, at this point, say, "Ah, You know what? 90 plus years in Babylonian captivity, been faithful. Well, 70 years in Babylonian captivity. 90 years old. Hey, I, I've been faithful. Mm-mm. He's not done. He still has to go. He still has a race to run. And, and, and it's very instructive to note how he prayed when he, when he goes to pray. Because if you look at verse 10, it says, now when Daniel knew that the writing, that the writing was signed, the law was passed, he went home and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees and he prayed. Now, he's not being obnoxiously defiant in his prayer. He's not saying, oh yeah, I can't pray. Well, guess what? I'm going to pray and boom and, and being obnoxious. But at the same time, he's not being cowardly or secretive either. He's just doing faithfully what he's always done. And he prays, he opens his windows towards Jerusalem. And, and on the one hand, he's being very public about it. He's not, he didn't go home into his upper room, close everything down and exercise this in, in, in secret. He just, he, he did what he always did. Here's the significance to the windows open towards Jerusalem. This is being obedient to scripture. See, in 2 Chronicles chapter six, I'll put the section up on the screen for you. This is when Solomon dedicated the temple. Here's what Solomon prayed. 
He prayed, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, speaking of the nation of Israel, he says, and they take them captive to a land far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we've committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their hearts and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city which you have chosen and toward here it is the temple which I have built for your name then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So Daniel here, he's being faithful to pray as Solomon has directed in scripture that he needs to pray. And what I want you to note also is that he's thankful in his prayer. Now, how is that possible that he he knows, look, it's a death sentence if you pray. And then he goes and he prays and, and, and does it anyway. And he knows, well, now I'm going to get tossed to the lion's den. And yet miraculously, he's thankful in the midst of his prayer. There's a couple of reasons for that. One I'll gloss over because we've looked at it before. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. That as we're thankful in our prayers, the point is, look, you're anxious, you're worried, you're stressing out, but as you have an, an attitude of thankfulness and in your prayers, you pray thankfully to the Lord. Well, when you give thanks, automatically you're reminded of all the time that the Lord has been faithful in your life and it strengthens your faith. And so this is a great cure for anxiety just to thank Jesus, thank the Lord for everything that he's done in your life and all the times he's been faithful and it puts the problem that I'm facing here in perspective. Now we've looked at that before, but there's another reason that I want to focus on here as we're closing why Daniel can be thankful in his prayer. See, here's the point. Daniel was a student of the scriptures especially the prophet Jeremiah. And as such, he was aware of the prophecy that Jeremiah had given regarding Israel. See, at the time of this writing, the the Jews had been in Babylonian captivity now for 70 years. Daniel knows because he's been there the whole time. And he can add, he he can do the math. So he knows the, the, the prophecy the, 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 the captivity that was prescribed by God was 70 years and he knows that he's been there for 70 years. And so he, he's aware. If you were with us when we went through the book of Esther, we looked at, at, at this whole idea and Jeremiah's prophecy and the implications for Israel. See, God had warned them that this was going to happen and the reason for their captivity was because they disobeyed God. Uh, in... Um, Leviticus 25, God had been preparing the nation of Israel to enter the promised land and he, and he dictated to Moses that they needed to have a Sabbath year's rest for the land every seven years and they were instructed to work the land and harvest its crop for six years and then on the seventh year they were not to work the land, they were to, to let the land rest, to have its Sabbath year rest and they were to have you know, stored up enough food of that six years and have trusted in the Lord that during the six years he would provide enough for them to get them through the seventh year. That was the whole point. That was the idea. And so this is what they're instructed to do. And what, what, uh, what God had done in Leviticus 26, he gave them promises and cursings regarding this commandment. Here's the promise 20, in, um, in uh, Leviticus 26, verse three and four. He said, if you walk in my statutes and you keep my commandments and you perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then in verses 33 and 34 of that same chapter, he gave them a curse. He said, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. And then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And indeed, the Israelites disobeyed God. And just as he warned, they were overthrown and they were taken into Babylon captivity. And it was prescribed 70 years for all of those years that they didn't let the, the land have its Sabbath rest. And so again, Daniel can add, he's not stupid. 
And he knows, hey, God said we'll be here 70 years. Guess what? Time's up. And so here this proclamation comes down. And and so Daniel, he knows that several things are scheduled to happen right now. Here's what he knows. Again, with this understanding of 2 Chronicles, he knows that his people are going to come to themselves. He knows that his people are going to repent. He knows that they're going to make supplication to God in the land of their captivity. And he knows that they're going to return to God with all of their heart. This is what Daniel knows because he knows the word of God. Here's the point of application for you. What Daniel understands is that at this moment, God will be true to his word and it all comes down to him. He's in the place where, hey, listen, Daniel, the prophecy was given. The prophecy is true. You need to trust in God's word and you need to understand that it's all riding on you right now. Will you trust God? Will you obey? And will you do what he says right in the midst of what's threatened? And so he has to, like we have to, Daniel needs to understand that God's word says this, my circumstances say this, and it's all hanging on which one I'm gonna believe. Am I gonna trust and believe in God? Am I gonna trust that, hey, time's up and God's gonna be faithful to that? Or am I gonna cave and am I gonna cower and am I gonna compromise? That's alliterated, I hadn't planned it on that, it's kind of cool. So cave, cower, and compromise, right? Cool, all right. It all comes down to that. Listen, in your life, it all comes down to that. There's all sorts of things hanging in the balance. And it all comes down to, are you going to trust God and obey him? Or are you going to distrust him and disobey him? I'll close with this illustration. Then we'll partake of communion. And and it's a simple one. Two friends, Jim and Bob, they grew up together best friends. And, uh, and then Pearl Harbor happened. And, uh, and so on the very next day when, when Franklin Roosevelt declared war against Japan, Jim and Bob went down and they both signed up for the Marine Corps. And um, they were deployed together. They went through training together, deployed together. And they're in a battle. And in the midst of the battle, Bob went out and he, he was mortally wounded. And Jim saw all this unfold. And so Jim tried to rush out to Bob and his unit commander forbade him to go, gave him a direct order, told him he can't go. And so he disobeyed his unit commander's orders and he ran out there and he himself was mortally wounded as well. And he drug Bob back to, to, the, to the safety where they were and at this point, his unit commander screaming at him. And he says, what a waste. He said, he's dead. You're dying. What, why didn't you listen to me? And Jim looked at his unit commander as he was dying in his dying breath. And he said, when I went out there, Bob was still alive. And he said to me, I knew you'd come. we have a responsibility to be faithful to God. And the fact is when, when there is that mortal danger that's right in front of us, it has to be such that what matters most to me is that the Lord would say to me on that day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I knew you would come. I knew you would do what I told you to do. That has to be more important to us than anything else.